All right, Jesse, the super requested epic Betty Broderick episode just got about as much chatter as any love murder ever. What's the story this week? Infidelity, secret cyber romance, and controlling behavior plague a marriage in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia in the early 2000s. When one member of the couple is found dead of an apparent suicide, the authorities discover that there was yet another mysterious death in the surviving spouse's past. Oh, and guys, today we've got yet another dentist in this episode. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse, welcome back everyone to Love Murder, a podcast about hubs, schlubs, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover us. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. I think a Patreon subscription makes an excellent holiday present. I could not agree more. (laughs) This week, as always, we are thrilled to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Stephanie A., Sasha M., and Amanda T., Karen K., Jessica A., and Sherry, Susan C., Amantha T., and Tabitha S., Brianna F., Jessica L., and Blair K., Kobe P., Jamie S., and Sarah P., And finally, Michelle D. Another amazing group of patrons. We cannot thank you enough for your support, everyone who is tuning in. You may notice that my voice is just slightly off. Just slightly. I am recovering from a cold. Uh, Yes, and unfortunately, I am no Beyonce. I do not get vocal rest. Or like vitamin C shots. And (laughs) Yeah, nobody is helping me heal up. I'm just your friendly neighborhood true crime podcaster. So apologies for my husky voice this episode. Hopefully next week I will be back to normal. But I do have to say I am thrilled because today, what are we doing, Andy? Drinking mimosas. (laughs) We are in studio together, (laughs) which is always something to celebrate. Yeah, I just did a red eye last night. I know. You are looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for that, I have to say. With no makeup, too. I know, but you don't need it. I left it in LA, guys. It's sad. (laughs) She is gorgeous, as is, as always. And since I'm sure we are going to have some mini tangents today, because we're in person, we should probably get to the meat of the episode. Yeah. My little vegan. Let's get to the meat. Bogan Gates Drive in Buford, Georgia, is a safe street, an upscale neighborhood home to upper-middle-class professionals. The lawns are manicured. The homes, similar. Large and stately, with some red brick facades. At least they were in December of 2004. It was a chilly early Saturday morning on December 4th that year. Still early in the season, but many of the homes were already decorated with glittering holiday lights. It was the type of place, and absolutely the season of the year, when no one expected that bad things could happen. Because, of course, when there is a tragedy at Christmas time, that holiday is tainted forever. Yeah. Super sad. Yeah. 
This became sadly true for one family that December morning. One brave seven-year-old little boy would discover one of his parents dead and go for help. What he would tell them would shock the neighbors who came to his aid. As authorities began to parse through what looked like a suicide, they would discover a complicated marriage that had been filled with secrets. Both spouses had kept those secrets. Both had uttered untruths. But only one spouse's secrets were deadly. Today's story is also a very heavily recommended case. So we've got two in a row. Next week, we are back to a very virtually unknown case. I was having a hard time finding any podcast about next week's case. So if you are one of those people that love that we cover lesser known cases and you're like, okay, guys, really two in a row? (laughs) We've got you covered next week. But today is another one that we have gotten quite a few requests for, and it also happens to have a dentist featuring prominently in it. So I think that we have to put something up on social media of like our dentist group of episodes. Like a a dentist recap? Yes, exactly. Like which episodes have dentists in them? Yeah. Beware. (laughs) Beware of your dentist. Also, shout out to one of our listeners, my favorite dentist who's not my dad, Dr. Toothbooth. Yeah. She's been really helping me through some skincare stuff lately. (laughs) Okay, so our number one source is the queen of true crime, the patron saint of true crime podcasters, none other than Anne Rule. The book is called Too Late to Say Goodbye. There's also a forensic files on this case. It's very classic, this episode. Yeah. Season 12, episode 9, the episode is called Insignificant Others. There's a scorned love kills called Fatal Fantasies, as well as an oxygen series called A Wedding and a Murder. This episode was from season two and called Love Me and Never Leave Me. There's a Dateline episode that I could not actually dig up because it was rather old, but I did find like kind of a transcript from. And then there's some other articles that I will put in the notes because I went kind of heavy on this one. So without further ado, let's talk about a couple, a couple that would come to live and then one of them would die in that stately Georgia home. Jennifer Barber was the middle child of three girls who went as Jenny as a child, and she would later be called Jen, Jen with two N's. Her parents were very sweet. They were caring. They were as devoted to each other as they were different in appearances. So Jen's father, Max, was really tall and blonde. He was nine inches taller than his petite brunette wife, Narda. That is a big height difference. Jen's older sister, Rochelle, would take after her petite, dark mom, while Jen and youngest sister, Heather, would end up being very tall and striking. Jen ended up being, I think, just a little under six feet tall. So she was extremely tall. She and Heather would remain close for their entire lives. So the two younger sisters were really, really close. Sounds like Rochelle got married like right out of high school and was like totally on a different like adult journey while they were still... Younger kids still finding themselves. Yeah. They bonded extremely well. And they even as adults ended up living near each other so that they could be around each other to raise children. Cute. Okay. Yeah. It was like the kind of thing you dream about, like where you just get to like go out and have coffee with your sister best friend. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Jen was both sporty and artistic. She eventually attended the Savannah College of Art and Design. SCAD. SCAD. Exactly. After receiving her diploma, Jen lived for a little while with a boyfriend and she took classes towards a nursing degree, but she wasn't really sure if that's what she wanted to do. 
after the relationship broke up, she ended up moving back home and getting a job at an oyster bar in Duluth. Cool. Yeah, this place was called Barnacles. It sounded kind of like a vibe. That would like make me like second guess (laughs) eating them for sure. Well, Jen was an absolute standout. Due to her striking height, she just had affability in this you know, great away with people. And apparently she also mixed a mean white Russian. Wow. That's a skill I've never really <laughs> thought, thought that someone would have. Noteworthy. It's I just mean, milk. And I think the rum, dude right? the would d- abide. It is milk or cream with Kahlua and vodka. Oh, it's vodka. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're actually quite tasty, but you really can't drink that many. No. you. Like, and it's not necessarily, I would imagine, the drink of choice at an oyster bar. Yeah. But apparently hers were out of this world. I wonder what she put in it. Magic. It was there that she made the acquaintance of a young, good-looking dentist named Bart Corbin. Bart Barnacle. We got, we got the dentist in the house. <laughs> Bart was successful, witty, and he was tall. Jen loved that at 6'3", Bart was one of the few men that she could be eye-to-eye with if she wore heels. Yep. And he had no problem with that, which is nice. It's hard for tall women to find yes. confident men. They're not all looking for men that are taller than them. They just want a man who has confidence and will let them wear heels. Yeah. I mean, no man should let you do anything. But aren't intimidated. Exactly. Yeah. At 31, he was seven years older than 24-year-old Jen, and they did seem to mesh well together. They were both active. They liked to travel. And Jen's family initially really took to Bart. He seemed like a great catch. He was a professional in a time that Jen was still kind of finding her path. Yeah. He liked to go fishing with Max, Jen's father. He would give the family free dental work. I mean, what's not to like? Score. Yeah. The only thing they didn't like about him was the fact that Bart sprinkled every conversation with profanity, which is just a strange thing to do in the South when you're meeting somebody's parents. Yeah. Just uncommon. Did they have any examples? They didn't have any examples for sure. It was just like as part of conversation. I feel like you and I conversationally use profanity. But I don't think we would around other people's parents. It's just not necessary. No. So despite that one flaw, the family was delighted when Jen and Bart announced that she was pregnant and that they planned to get married very quickly after only several months of dating. I think it was like just short of a year. Okay. Max and Narda threw a beautiful garden wedding together in only six weeks. And Jen and Bart were married on September 1st, 1996. Anne Rule described it so well. She described like how the Georgia red clay mud was on the bottom of her wedding dress, but she couldn't care less because she was so happy and they were just so radiant together. So it sounds like it was a nice wedding on September 1st, 1996. Everyone said that they made an absolutely striking couple. Their son Dalton was born just about seven months later in March of 1997. Bart was building his own practice and Jen was taking to motherhood like a fish to water. She did amazingly with her kids. She was just a very nurturing person. And it's kind of funny because her mom, Narda, said that out of her children, she was probably the more career-oriented. And it had never been a huge goal of hers to get married, settle down, have kids. But then when she did, she was just a natural mother. Yeah. But I think if like if you're young enough and you still haven't like figured out what you want, that becomes your career, you know? Oh my like gosh. You also, being the best mom. So many people don't know that they want to be parents yes. or even partnered a lot of the time until they meet the right person yeah. or they're in the right situation. And she was still pretty young at yeah. this time. 
When their second son, Dylan, was born two years later in 1999, the family really truly seemed complete. They looked absolutely perfect on paper. They have the dentist husband. He's got his own practice. A striking young mother who doted on these two adorable boys. They bought a houseboat. I guess also her family had a houseboat, so they would dock the houseboats together. Oh, my gosh. They eventually moved into the very pretty and large house on Bogan Gates Drive. Heather married a wonderful guy as well, and they ended up living near Jen and Bart for a little while. So the two sisters would be able to hang out together, raise their little kids together. It was just a really charming existence. Yeah. But behind it all, Jen could not shake the feeling that she did not truly know her husband. Ah. So she knew where he came from. He came from Snellville, Georgia. And he was the eldest of three boys. He actually had a twin named Brad, but he had beat him out of the womb by four minutes. And then he had a younger brother named... but he's... The eldest. But he's alive? Yes. Okay. Not like Nathaniel's twin that he killed in utero and absorbed his powers. So I always tell Nathaniel he's so smart. He absorbed his twin and there was like nothing left except for this like little like sack of teeth attached to his forehead that they had to surgically remove when he was... Like a year old. You know, a lot of hats for him until that point. So she had like this cursory knowledge of who he was. Yeah. And I think that their romance had been very whirlwind. They had traveled a lot. They had been doing exciting things. He was building his practice, so he was busy a lot. And they like got married because they were pregnant. I think that that's great. But like it was, they got it ready in six weeks. Like you don't have so much time to do it at your own pace when you're trying to get it done quickly. Yeah. And I think that when something's new, sometimes you don't know how to ask the probing questions. You don't, Yeah, you're just enjoying the ride. Yeah. Which you should. Exactly. And so Jen, once they're actually in this marriage and they're getting deeper into it, she's realizing that she doesn't know especially anything about Anyone he dated, any ex-partners. Did his parents or any of his friends come to the wedding? So his family, I believe his parents were divorced. And I think that his father had remarried to somebody pretty young. Okay. As I recall, I might be off in that. That's just like a recollection that I had from something that I heard. But I know that they weren't as close as Jen's family, the Barbers. Okay. and. I think that they had tried to, like, meld especially the mothers-in-law, especially when there's grandkids involved. But Narda said she just could never find any common ground with Bart's mother. He had a very conservative upbringing. His father was extremely strict, very punishing about achieving, like, the kind of sports dad that's really aggressive. Yep. And... He had a very bizarre first talk about sex and about women. So his dad reportedly wasn't, I mean, it sounded like he was a little misogynistic. Okay. And then his health teacher told him that women hate sex and that it is painful and unenjoyable for them and that if they have any respect for any of the girls or women in their lives, they should not subject them to that. Wow. That'll give you a warped view of sex and romance, obviously. Yeah. So I think that he had a certain remoteness to him that came from a different type of upbringing and in general, just his personality. Yeah. But there was also something a little secretive 
as well. And Jen was trying to parse through what part of that was just his personality, which she thought was kind of attractive and mysterious at the beginning. And what part of it is him keeping secrets from her? Because that's not cool. She once said to her sister, Heather, do you ever wonder about what your husband did or who he knew before you met him? Heather was like, no, like, I know everything about who he was. Like, I have zero questions. And he's the same guy, obviously. And Jen, I guess, frowned and she said, I don't. I don't know anything about what Bart was like before me. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Other than college and that he had gone to dental school. She just didn't seem to know a lot about how he operated in romantic relationships. He didn't like to talk about ex-girlfriends. Yeah, why are they ex-girlfriends? Exactly. What went wrong? Yeah. How can we avoid that? Like all of the normal. Yeah. As some of these red flags popped up, Jen began to wish that she had asked more questions. There's some other non-relationship red flags that came up as well. One was that she had a beloved dog when she met Bart. His name was Sebastian. And when they moved in together, she had to call her mom and say, you have to come get my dog because the dog would not stop barking and snarling at Bart. Stop. It was just like a really nice old yellow lab who had never been upset with anyone, had never been aggressive at all. Yellow labs are known generally for being friendly. Yes. Very good judgments of character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a huge red flag yeah. when a dog that seemingly likes everyone really dislike somebody. And she said that she was worried that Bart was going to hurt or kill the dog because the dog was going after Bart. And Bart's like, if it keeps coming after me, I'm going to kill it. And so she had her parents take the dog. And her parents said later that that was really hard on Jen because she did love the dog a lot. Of course. And they said that in all the time they had the dog, the only person that the dog ever growled at was Bart. Wow. So that's a huge, huge red flag. Wow, that's trippy. Especially because she had had the dog for a couple years or a few years at that point when Bart came into her life. You can imagine this dog was very protective over her. After the couple was married and Jen had given birth to Dalton, Narda also noticed that Bart would kind of put Jen down. He would say weird things. He even called her a bimbo once in front of her parents. What? Yeah. Like, what era are you living in? He also kind of started controlling her in ways large and small. She always had nice manicures and pedicures. Nothing crazy, just like the old pink and red. And he didn't like it, so he forbade her from having any nail polish on her nails. She had to be totally natural. He also would scrutinize her credit card bill. And if she had even a $10 expense that he hadn't approved, he would go crazy on her. Yeah, so massive control freak. Massive control freak. He was also prone to fits of temper. He would throw things. He would slam kitchen cabinets or doors. Heather's husband said that he doesn't know if it was just like he didn't grow up in a family like that, but he had never witnessed an adult person who acted like that. Yeah, it's like toddler behavior. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like temper tantrum for sure. But for a long time, for Jen, the good outweighed the bad with Bart. But then eventually, in all relationships, I feel like like this, it stops one day. It stops outweighing the bad. So I believe Jen's eyes began opening about how this was maybe not going to work out, even though she desperately wanted it to, following her second child, Dylan's birth. Bart wanted absolutely nothing to do with the care of the babies, really. That was her territory. But yet he was also annoyed 
that Jen had to devote her full attention to them because he wanted her attention. Okay. So he's getting almost mad and jealous of his own very small children. Yeah. When she had presented the news of her second pregnancy with Dylan, she had gift-wrapped a little baby rattle and given it to him in a box to open and be like, surprise, we're having a second baby. And he was so angry that he allegedly threw the box across the room. What did he think was going to happen when he had sex with her? Well, his health class sounded pretty poor, so I don't know if he, (laughs) he didn't get the memo. He did have a vasectomy after Dylan was born, and he did tell a friend that as far as he was concerned, both of his children were accidents. Oh, my God. Yeah, so this would tip off any mother that things are not going very well here. So Bart did get obsessed with his sons when they both came of an age where they could start participating in Little League and any sort of peewee sports because his dad had been that kind of sports, aggressive sports dad. But it definitely was not the right type of attention. He went totally overboard with expecting performance and perfection. Max, their grandfather, Jen's dad, had to actually step in at one Little League game when Dalton, who was only six years old at the time, struck out at a Little League game. And in front of everyone, Bart screamed at the little boy, calling him a loser and an idiot. Max and Narda were very understanding. They stepped in. They were like, you need to cool off. And they just tried to understand it as that was the way he was raised. And they were going to try to support their grandsons in other ways because obviously Bart didn't know any better. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? No. Also, like, in front of all the other parents, Well, Jen was so upset because it started really early. I think Dalton was the oldest. So in his career, his sports career, that she would not sit with him. She was so embarrassed by his behavior that she was like, you can come to the games, but I'm not sitting with you because she had tried to get him to stop saying and doing things like that, but he kept doing it. And she was like, I can't be around you. I would say don't come. Yeah, absolutely. There was also someone else who kept coming to the games that also pissed Jen off. His office manager and sometimes dental assistant, I heard her described as many number of things. Her? Her. Now, this is a woman. She is pseudonymed Dara Prentice in everything I read. And I can understand why she wouldn't want her name out there because Jen suspected that Bart was having an affair with her. That's unreal that he's bringing her to the games. And he's bringing her to his children's Little League Did she like it when he would yell at his children? I mean, Dara obviously had her own set of issues, I'll say, because she too was married. She had children herself. And we're going to describe the working environment that Bart engendered in a little bit. And she seemed to bypass that as well or look past that, which he didn't operate any differently in his professional life. So he called people losers when they were in the chair. (laughs) Could you imagine? You shitty flosser. God. Dara was everywhere. He also would have them socialize with Dara and her husband. And Jen just had such an uneasy feeling about it because she very strongly suspected that something was going on between the two of them. She didn't love that Dara was invited to everything that they did in their lives. And there was a part of Jen that like kind of formed a friendship with her. So it just felt very insidious because she's like, I like her-ish. Like, she's friendly to me. So I don't have a reason to not like her. But she's a good person. She's a good person, it seems like. And, like, none of his staff would stay. So it was, like, nice that he had Dara. 
But at the same time, it's just, are you both fooling me then? Are you both getting away with something behind my back and this is your thing? Yeah, I was saying that Jen's a good person. Not oh, Jen. Yeah, from Jen's perspective, she just didn't know what to do about yeah. this. And she also told her mom and her sister that that's what her suspicions were because they also knew Dara because they had been around her. Yeah, that's so strange. Like, could you imagine if, like, we're at <laughs> Echo's Gymnastics and, like, Dan brings the assistant from <laughs> his record label? That would be so strange. It'd be so weird. There's no words for it. It's not. There's no reason that needs to happen. Yeah. Well. Wow. Narrator says. Unless, you know. That's me. I'm the narrator. <laughs> I say, Jen was not crazy. Bart was indeed having an affair with Dara. And it had been going on since before the two were even married. Before Jen and Bart were married? Yes. Wow. Before Bart even started his own practice, he worked at another dentist's office where Dara had done some administrative work. Even though Dara was married and had two small children... They struck up an affair that would last for the next decade. Wow. Dara was in love with Bart, and Bart obviously felt some way about Dara because he never ended their affair, and he kept kind of making her work for him and be in his orbit, so I feel like he was controlling her, too. Yeah. She would later say, because Dara did speak to Anne Rule, and she would later say that she thought that there was some forever down the road date that they were going to be together. Yeah. And that she thought that he never pressured her to leave her marriage when he was single because he understood how important her children were to her. Yeah. And maybe it was the best thing at the time it felt like to keep them in their home. Sounded like her husband was kind of detached. He was a lot older than her. He was kind of cold and distant. So it's kind of it's not a far leap to see why she'd be attracted to Bart, who was also described as cold and distant. But, like, they worked in the same space, so it, like, made it seem like there was probably more. Intimacy. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it was most violating, though, was that he actually told Dara everything in his life, including stuff about his marriage to Jen, versus Jen not knowing anything about their relationship, yeah. obviously. Dara would later say that she even told Bart to marry Jen after he found out that Jen was pregnant. <sighs> okay, so this is what she said to Anne Rule about the whole scenario. Dara had actually debated whether he should break up with Jen, urge her to have an abortion, or marry her. Bart told Dara in 1996 that he was very angry when Jen became pregnant and that he wanted her to abort the baby. I told him that I thought he should marry Jen, Dara would remember some 10 years later. It seemed to me that that was the honorable thing for him to do. And I guess he loved her too, but I admit that I did feel really bad when he got married. I think I expected more. She even attended the wedding and the reception. This is so creepy. Yeah. She said, it tore my heart out. Not surprisingly, I drank too much at the reception. I was dancing with a lot of Bart's friends, and he asked one of my girlfriends to make sure I made it home okay and that I didn't do anything stupid. Gross. It's just so inconceivable to me that you would invite your affair partner to your wedding and also that she would accept the invitation and go. And then that he would go out of his way to make sure she got home okay. At his wedding? Yeah. It's just a twist. Poor Jen. Yeah. So she's feeling all these feelings. It's very similar to Betty Broderick, 
only going on for their entire marriage yeah. before they were even together. together. That he wasn't truly even really single when he met Jen, obviously. And she didn't know what to do with this because it was a similar gaslighting thing, which is I work really closely with Dara. She's my office manager. You're being crazy. Yeah. We're just really close friends. So she was definitely not blind to that connection. And this is also a similar point in this like young babyhood, young toddlerhood. She's Mm -hmm. losing herself in motherhood, but she's also losing herself in this relationship, in this marriage where she doesn't feel supported. She feels like she's going a little crazy thinking that he's having this affair. Yeah. And she didn't feel like she had anything solid to hold on to other than pouring her love into her kids, obviously. And unlike Betty, whom we talked about last time, she decided to be proactive about figuring out her own life and what she was going to do to build a life for herself. And one of those things was getting a job as soon as Dylan was old enough to be in full day preschool. So she actually taught at another preschool. I'm not sure if he was in the preschool she was teaching at or a different one. But in any case, she got a job teaching preschool at Sugar Hill Methodist Church. And everyone said she was phenomenal. I'm sure. She didn't make a ton of money, but she threw herself into the position with vigor. And also at the same time while she's doing this, she is still performing all of the household duties and being the primary parent. She is just doing everything. Meanwhile, Bart's horrible bedside manner and angry outbursts threatened to upend his entire practice. Not only was he not especially competent as a dentist, he would swear and scream at his assistants in front of patients. He would, like, throw tools and stuff all the time and yell at them. Dental tools. Yeah, like the tray of stuff. He would just throw a tray. He also just did not seem like he was very good at what he was doing. He once told a woman who was hemorrhaging from her mouth during a crown appointment that he did not know how to stop the bleeding. She said that while she's bleeding, she's like practically choking on her blood. There's so much of it. He just put his head in his hands and he was like, I don't know how to stop this. And she had to go to the hospital. And she sued him, obviously. He was like, I'm only going to refund her half. That definitely doesn't cover the PTSD that that woman... Oh, my gosh. That is People are, are scared of dentists enough Yeah, without having an experience like that. So I was reading an article on the Crime Wire, and I will link to that in our show notes. And a person wrote in in the comments, and they said, quote, I worked for Bart Corbin in 1994. During that time, I was a constant nervous wreck. He would throw things and scream and rant nearly every workday. During that time period, his girlfriend at the time broke up with him, and he got drunk and literally kicked in her apartment door. Oh, my God. He was already involved in an affair with his receptionist who was married, which I'm imagining. Dara? Yeah. So this man is a monster. There is a lot to love about the holidays. The food, the fun, the family, and friends. And, of course, getting to travel across the country twice in two weeks to record with you. That's my absolute favorite part about the holidays. But one thing that isn't so great is the waste. Each year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year's. But what if we told you there was a way to get all of your holiday shopping done without feeling guilty over the waste that typically comes with it? Meet Blueland. Blueland is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet. And this holiday season, Blueland is having its best sale of the year, 
so you can save and shop sustainably for your friends, family, and especially for yourself. The idea is simple. Grab one of the beautiful forever bottles, fill it with warm water, drop it in the tablet, and get cleaning. Refills start at $2.25, and you don't have to buy a new plastic bottle every time you run out. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk so you never run out of the products you use most. From cleaning sprays to hand soap to toilet cleaner and laundry tablets, all Blueland products are made with ingredients you can feel good about. Yeah, it's truly amazing. I have been using Blueland for probably about three years now, a little bit over three years. Yeah, ever since we were pregnant with the kids, yep. right? Yep, and I was doing research on safe cleaning products that were also sustainable. And I just fell in love with the scent assortment that Blueland has. And then when I got the packaging, I was like, oh yeah, this is the right one. Oh my gosh. Also, the holiday hand soap gift set is so, so cute. I'm obsessed. As you know, we are a holiday obsessed family. Yes. <laughs> Plus for a limited time, Blueland's hand soap is getting a festive upgrade, like I was just talking about. <laughs> With a beautiful chocolate box-inspired gift set with cozy scents like peppermint, winterberry, and vanilla frost. It's the perfect gift for your loved one or yourself to reduce waste so that the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future don't come for your wasteful self. So take advantage of their best sale of the year for up to 25% off your entire order. Go to blueland.com slash lovemurder. You won't want to miss this. blueland.com slash lovemurder. That's blueland.com slash lovemurder. Jesse, it finally happened. Are you talking about what I think you're talking about? Yes. Our website has finally been updated to Shopify and I could not be happier. I think everyone placing orders for merch could not be happier either because it's such a better system. Yeah, but like everything. When I went back to LA for two days to ship everything, it was a million times easier. My life is a piece of cake now with e-com <laughs> fulfillment. Well, if you don't know, Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a small business entrepreneur like Andy or a part of a huge enterprise, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Even if you're just a true crime podcast that needs to sell some merch. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, or of course, cool vintage finds like me, Shopify has you covered. Yes. And finally, it's not just Andy's awesome store, Riri Koo, that is using Shopify, but Love Murder ourselves. Totally. It has been so much fun to bring all of the tips and tricks I've learned using this incredible platform over to the Love Murder store. This is going to make the experience so much better for all of the listeners, especially coming the holiday season where, let's be clear, there's a lot of great new merch on our site. You've done such a good job with it. It's been really fun. Andy, did you also know that Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. By the end of 2003, Bart's practice had lost so many patients that he had to go work as a contractor at another dentist practice one or two days a week. How does that work? Like he's losing clients because they don't want to go to him. And then like 
he's just like a temp there. So if you show up and like it's his day, you have him. Yeah, pretty much. That's so scary. It's also really embarrassing because if you have your own practice, you should get to a point where you're so busy that you have to bring in new dentists. Yeah. Not that you have to go work for another dentist because... Yeah, you should just quit. (laughs) This lifestyle, this job, this profession is not for you. Yeah, sir. So this was really bad. He was losing control of his finances, his business, and to his mind, his wife. Because Jen is starting to grow an independent life without him. She's now making a little bit of her own money. The boys are growing up to a point where they can be in school. So she's kind of getting herself back together. And, you know, it's really hard to know what Jen's state of mind was at this point. I think, honestly, she was just trying to grab any little bit of life or pleasure that she could. Yeah. Around Christmas 2003, her mother introduced her to a PlayStation fantasy video game called EverQuest. The game was played over the internet. So it's one of those things where you get to exchange messages with people. Like second, what is it, second life? Do you remember that one? I don't know if it's like that or more like a, my gosh, I'm trying to think of like the things that my brother played growing up. But he'd be on the computer and like playing with other people and they'd all go on a quest together. Okay. And so it was still, like it was like a role playing game. Yeah. Essentially. So I don't know if it was like they go on like certain quests and it was like an action oriented one or if it's more like second life because I didn't really look into it. But in any case, It was the type of game where you end up talking to and playing with strangers. Mm -hmm. So she ended up connecting with a guy who went by Sir Tank 1223. And they ended up playing together often, and they eventually exchanged emails to communicate outside of the game. In the real life? Yes. By summer of 2004, Jen was routinely chatting with Sir Tank, who was a guy the same age as Jen. They were both 33, and this guy's name was Chris. So he wrote and told Jen that he was divorced and he did not have any of his own children, but he was actually raising his sister's kids after, I don't know what had happened with his sister, but he was raising her kids. And it sounded like, it's not like she had passed away. It sounds like maybe she was just having some troubles or something. Chris worked in a restaurant and he lived in St. Louis. And it sounded like he really obviously was interested in Jen or they had this easy communication, but he was not really at the beginning, at least gunning to be with her because he's like, I just like work in a restaurant and you're married to a dentist and yep. yeah, yeah, you yeah. have this like really nice like life and house and I'm kind of like paycheck to paycheck. Yep. So I don't know if he thought maybe Jen wouldn't be interested in him because also when they start playing together, even though Jen wasn't happily married, she was very married. Yeah. There was no looking around for her. She was not on the lookout for some sort of affair partner. But it seemed like over the months and the messages, here was a guy who was really pouring out his whole heart. Yeah. He is talking about past relationships and his own divorce and everything. And he's being so vulnerable and so honest and checking in with her daily multiple times a day to see how she's feeling, how she's doing. That was something that she had absolutely never had. So by September of 2004, when they had connected, I think, earlier that year, the very beginning of that year, Christopher told Jen that he was falling in love with her. Just through email. Just through email. They had never even talked on the phone. And Jen admitted that she felt the same way. Chris had really unlocked something inside of her, which was hope. He gave her a reason to feel like she could fall in love again, that maybe... 
there was possibility if she did end this marriage. Yeah. She didn't have to always be suspecting and feeling less than and being talked down to. Uh, Now, obviously, conducting an emotional affair is not a healthy way to deal with a crumbling marriage. No, but sometimes it helps you see yourself as someone who can move on. That can move on. It's like a great impetus to say, this is going to springboard me into a life alone, knowing that I won't be alone forever. And we have to also keep in mind, because a lot is made of this kind of like online affair that she's having. But it's just email exchanges. Yeah, even though Bart was having an affair the entirety of his marriage to Jen. And Chris was definitely that impetus for change that she needed to make in her life. So she wrote to him in an email. This is like kind of where her mindset is. So I want to read this because this is from one of her emails. It's okay to be scared, Christopher. I'm scared. We are both going to have to make big changes in our life if we want to be together. And that is never easy. I love how you make me feel. I love that there are no walls with you. I love that I feel I can tell you just what I'm feeling in the moment. I know with you that my whole life is going to change, that our love is going to be so powerful that it's going to be overwhelming. I don't know why it is we feel like we do. How did I meet a man so far away from me that can affect me the way you do? A man I've never laid eyes on. I've never seen smile or heard laugh. A man that I can confess every thought I have or bad moment I have ever had And I'm comfortable doing just that. I want you to feel comfortable doing just that. I know. I mean, she's sprung. I feel like if you're in a loveless marriage for a really long time, it's almost like a first love again. Absolutely. Yeah. So Bart, of course, is noticing that Jen's pulling away because she is now less concerned about what he's doing and more interested in her work life, her kids, and playing this game and escaping and speaking to this guy. Yep. He started talking to neighbors, friends of theirs, even Jen's own family, saying, like, I don't know what's going on with her. I feel like she is pulling away from me, pulling away from our marriage. Can you tell me what's going on? And looking for information, basically. Ew. Yeah. Go talk to her. She's your wife. I know. And I think this is a lot of projection, too, because the people who are always the most suspicious are usually the ones that are cheating. Yeah. So he knows what he is doing. And all of a sudden, he's, like, picking up that she wants to be alone or she's just like, yeah, it's fine. I want to, like, just play my game or write an email. And he's like, what is she doing? Where is she going? What's going on? It's what's good for the gander is not good for you, goose. (laughs) Now, Heather and Narda, that's Jen's sister and mother, knew that she was speaking to somebody because Jen told them everything. And they were not a big fan of this. They obviously wanted her to be happy. They were happy that she had something to live for again. But they, I don't think, knew the extent of how bad things had gotten with Bart. And they also did not necessarily believe that Bart was really having an affair. So from their perspective, perspective, she was willing to throw away an almost decade-long marriage to the father of her children. To the father of her children yep. for some guy she had never talked to on the phone. Yeah, who she met through a video game and lives in St. Louis. And yeah. could be literally anyone yes. and not who he's saying he is. Yeah. No, I completely understand. Yeah. They felt like there was just a real sweetness to Jen, but that could translate into naivete. But they wanted to support her. So obviously they're not giving Bart any information other than you've kind of talked down to her and been dismissive of her for a really long time and it's not 
any surprise that she's feeling this way. Yeah. Which was also true. Did they say that to him? Yes. I mean, they were trying to back channel, hopefully fixing the marriage. And they were going to counseling. And I think Jen was still torn, but she was getting, every day she was getting to a point when it was getting towards the end of 2004 of feeling like she wanted to leave. So far, in fact, that she started kind of squirreling away a little nest egg for when she left. Yeah. When she bought household items, she'd buy double and store them with her mom. Yeah. And there was only so much she could do because remember, he's going over everything she buys. Yeah. Buy one, get one, you know? Exactly. So she's kind of like slowly preparing for leaving him. Which is what women do. Yes. They have to, they plan and they do it for months. And it's also kind of even without, let's say, let's remove the extramarital affairs even if we're calling the online affair that. In this type of marriage, this is totally what happens, which is the woman in heterosexual relationships, at least, I don't want to speak to (laughs) queer relationships, but it seems like the woman gets to a point where she feels like she's tried, she's tried, she's tried, and then she's done, and then she just starts preparing to leave, and she's kind of ready to go by the time she actually drops the bomb. Yes. And then the dude is like, this is my first inkling. Yeah. I had no idea that you felt this way. I had no idea. And then he's like, let's fix it. And they've like been done for months. A year. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of how it felt to Bart. Like this was just all coming out of the blue. She finally did gather up her courage and she said, we just really haven't been happy for a long time. And I think that we need to get divorced. And it was exactly... Like we just talked about, he's like, are you kidding me? Like, this is all coming out of the blue. I can't believe you're doing this to us. So at that point, he began apologizing to her for years of putting her down, not seeing her, taking her for granted. But it was just too late. She was ready for something different. Yeah. That ship had sailed. So she did agree to stay with Bart throughout the holidays because by this point, I think it was October. Yeah. And she's like, look, there's no reason why this can't be amicable. I think that we can stay together, we can live together, we can do the holidays, give the kids like one last really amazing holiday season before we even file any paperwork and get through this together and then sort everything out in the new year. Well, almost as soon as Jen made this decision, told Bart, and then of course, very happily told Christopher that she was actually making these moves in her life, Christopher disappeared. Is it Bart? No, no, that's what I thought too. Oh. When I was first listening to this story, I was like, oh. no, if it had been Bart, I think that he would have stayed in contact with her to get more information. Okay, he just got freaked out? I think he got freaked out. So there's a big reason for why he got so freaked out. Jen was, of course, completely beside herself. She did have a phone number. I think that they might have talked on the phone at one point. He's not answering the phone. He's not responding to any of her emails for a couple days. And that's not like them. They talked 15 times a day. Yeah. There's some emails like in the book where she's just like, what could have happened? Where have you gone? You have been my support, my lifeline for months now, and you just disappear on me. I don't even know how to find you. She was really upset. Well, finally, Christopher came back. And I don't think it was very long. I think it was like probably even less than a week, but it just felt like eternity. Of course. And he said that he had a confession to make. Christopher did not really exist. He was actually a woman named Anita. What? Yes. What? She got Fully catfished. She got fully catfished. Wait, that's insane. What? No wonder she was so vulnerable. And open and sensitive. It was a girl. 
<laughs> yes. And also, this is happening in 2004. Is she queer or is she? She was, I think she identified as bisexual. Okay. So she was like exploring her world, but that obviously wasn't who Jen thought she was. Exactly. And oh, this man. is also just such unfamiliar territory. The term catfish hadn't even been coined yet. So I looked it up and that documentary came out, the Nev Shulman documentary came out in 2010. Wow. So we are six years before that. And so obviously, I think even then people knew that people could pretend to be other people on the internet, obviously. But she went in really believing that Christopher was exactly who he said he was. Wow, that is so sad. And she did go back because they had talked about things of a sexual nature. And she just thought he was polite, not mentioning like his dick and stuff. But when she realized she went back, she was like, she never said anything that was like, really identifying herself as a man. Yeah, nothing phallic. No, no, there is no talk of like penetrative sexual intercourse in that fashion. Wow. So they were having... They were having like sexual conversations okay. too. It was like their like love and feelings had kind of bubbled over into this other sexual place. Yeah. Of course, Jen thought she was speaking to a man. And Anita was trying to say... Basically, everything else I told you was true. I am 33. I do live in St. Louis. I do take care of my sister's children. But that's a very big thing to lie about. Of course. And it's, I mean, it's still like the magic of allowing Jen to see that there's a world of possibility is still there no matter who the person on the other end is. But being lied to about it the whole time is what kind of tarnishes it, you know? It really does. I think that if you could have some sort of distance, you could almost say, okay, not the person for me, but I opened myself up. But instead, it now just feels like another gross betrayal. Of course. Because it is. I mean, before they were making future plans and saying, I love you, Anita could have mentioned it. Yeah. Jen was, of course, she was surprised. She was pissed off. She was heartbroken. Yeah. Nonetheless, she knew... Christopher or no Christopher, as it may be, she still had to go through with her divorce. Yeah. So she wasn't changing her mind about the future of her marriage just because Christopher ended up being a catfish. As Bart had felt her slipping away before the reveal, he had started to become increasingly threatening. At this point in their relationship, he had never been physically aggressive with her. He'd always just kind of been verbally abusive. But she told her mother prior to Thanksgiving that she had become frightened that Bart might physically harm her. Wow. And then on Thanksgiving, he did. So Thanksgiving fell on November 25th in 2004, and the Corbins were headed over to Heather's house to celebrate, as well as Narda and Max. So the whole family is going over there. The family stopped at a Kroger, which is a grocery store for you guys who don't know. Oh, I know. Yeah, <laughs> Kroger's are great. We could do a whole episode on regional grocery stores. Jewel Osco. <laughs> Piggly Wiggly. Oh, God, I love a Piggly Wiggly. I don't know if I love it or if I just like the name. No, they used to have baby carts. Really? To, yeah, they used to have carts that you could push around next to, like, your parent. That's so cute. Yeah. They stopped at Kroger because Heather had just moved, and so she didn't have all of her stuff unboxed. And so she had asked Jen if she could pick up a turkey baster. Okay. So Jen had one of those big mom bags all moms have where you just kind of keep all your stuff in it constantly like the stuff for the kids and whatever paperwork you have and just things that pile up in there. And so she had this huge bag that she just slung over like the passenger seat, like hung down into the back of the seat. Yep. 
And so she just basically took some money and ran in to buy the turkey baster. And while she was doing that, Bart got that bag out and started digging through it and looking through absolutely everything. Was he in the car still? He was still in the car with the kids. Wow. And I don't know if she had realized this, but she had printed out some emails from Christopher. I don't know if she wanted to read them because they were romantic or why she had done that, but she had printed them out and they were in her bag. So he found them, of course. And I don't think at that point she knew that Christopher was Anita. He didn't. And and by these emails, they were not the reveal emails. They were prior romantic emails. So he was furious. But when she got back in the car... He didn't say anything to her, but it was clear. So she's like, oh, my God, I must have left. She knew. She knew. Like, it was just the tension in the car, and he was just kind of, like, vibrating with anger. And so she felt sick to her stomach, realizing that she had left those emails in her purse, and he had obviously gone through her purse. He had also pocketed her cell phone that had been in her purse. So he had taken it at that point. Yeah. They go to Thanksgiving, and he got wasted. He got completely drunk. And they were barely finished eating. People were still eating their main course and the plates weren't even cleared and they still had pie and they were going to hang out when he just abruptly got off from the table and he's like, we're leaving now. And he started like screaming at the kids to get in the car. He's like, we're done here. We're out. And it was just very jarring for everyone, obviously. And the kids were started to cry because they wanted pie. They wanted to play with their cousins. They thought that they were having a holiday. And he's like, get in the car. So he is screaming at them. Jen knows exactly what this is going to be about. So she's on edge. And apparently the moment they got outside, he starts screaming at her that she was a slut, that he knew about her dirty little online affair that he was going to go back in there and tell her whole family what she was up to. And they were shouting so loud outside that the family inside could hear what was going on. And so now she's begging him to not do this in front of the kids. Yeah. We'll talk about this later. This isn't the time. Please don't do this in front of the boys who were seven and five. So she managed to get like them all in the car. Like Bart's in the passenger seat because he had been drinking so much. So she's driving. And she drove off trying to get them home and away from her family's Thanksgiving celebration and calm down her kids who are very upset in the back seat. And as she's driving, which is very, very dangerous, basically Bart wouldn't stop ranting at her and she had tried to kind of shush him and he hit her right in the face while she was driving, just smashed her right in the face. At that point, the kids started, of course, both crying and screaming in the back seat. And she just went completely numb because she has to get her kids home safely. She has to figure out how to shake this off and drive. Oh, my God. And he must have seen her face because she was also like, I'm going to figure out how to get him out of the car and then get my kids somewhere safely. And he said, I never touched you. It's your word against mine. So the kids are hearing all this, too. And Seven is definitely old enough to absolutely say I witnessed this. Two years older than Aldi? Yeah, yeah, this situation. That night, it sounds like she managed to get everyone inside. And I don't know if he was preoccupied with something or he passed out or whatever it is. But it, as soon as he was somehow preoccupied, she got the kids in the car and she took them back to Heather's, to her sisters. Bart still had Jen's phone 
Was she like bruised? I don't know what kind of marks she had on her because her parents were having a very hard time believing that Bart did that. Not that they were questioning her. They were just kind of like surprised because they had never had a physical altercation before. So this was all really shocking and new because I think at that point she had told them that the relationship with Christopher was off. So there might have been some hope that they maybe were reconciling. Yeah. So this was just a shock to everyone's system. Of course, her family rallied around her. I do not know the extent of her injuries at that point. So Bart still had Jen's phone, and he would spend the next few days calling every number in her phone to the point where he called Narda because I guess Jen had her studio number. Um, Narda had an art studio. And she was like, why are you calling me? Are you calling every number in Jen's phone book? Because she could tell that the phone number he was calling from was Jen's. That is so insane. It seems like he was trying to find Chris, and he did actually call Anita, but she didn't pick up. Wow. But eventually, somehow, she and Bart came to some sort of truce. Obviously, he profusely apologized. He agreed to the divorce. I think that Jen wanted him to go live in the houseboat, but he would not. I think she also talked to a divorce attorney who said, it would be better for you if you're occupying the house for you getting to keep it. Like, the children and you need to be in the house. He needs to move out, essentially. So dangerous, It's very dangerous. Whatever the situation was, they decided to come to a situation where they would live in the house together throughout the holidays. But now this divorce was less theoretical and more certain. Yeah. I think that it affected, I mean, obviously Jen, but... Dalton, the seven-year-old, the most, he became Jen's protector, essentially, which is just such a heavy responsibility for a child. Yeah. That he was nervous when she was out of his sight. He felt like he had to be present with her, especially around his father. He was extremely stressed out. It was just a very bad situation, obviously. Bart was obsessed with uncovering Jen's online lover. And when the first phone call situation happened and he did not find this Chris person, he started going through all of her stuff, frequently stealing her purse, going through her belongings, trying to like hack into her email. And on one occasion, Jen was just getting fed up with it. And he had taken something from her purse, I believe, and he had it with him on his person. And she was trying to get it back from him and he got in the car to drive away and she literally like got next to the car and she's like, give me back what you took from my purse. And he on purpose ran over her foot and backed out. Oh my God. Yes. So she called 911, explained the situation. The dispatcher said that they could hear the children crying in the background. Now that the the neighborhood is seeing this. I mean, kind of good though. Yes, that there's witnesses yes. to this. Yeah. Thankfully, no bones were broken. How? I, I don't know. Sometimes if it goes really fast, I think that I've heard... I ran over my mom's boyfriend's foot in high school. On purpose? No, of course not. <laughs> His foot was just big and in the way. Did, did it break? I don't think it broke. Yeah, they said she had soft tissue damage, but she hadn't broken any bones. Yeah, it's so crazy. I think I, like, stopped on it, too. <laughs> no. Yeah, it was, like, one of those things where it was, like... Ah, stop. And then I like stopped on it. And he's like, no, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Phil. Oh, poor Phil. I know. He didn't deserve it. No. No, he's a nice guy. Yeah. Nice guy, Phil? Yeah. Okay. Poor Phil. 
this was when things were already bad. Now they're getting ugly. And Bart was now realizing that there wasn't really going to be any way he could reconcile this. Yeah, no. So he decided that Jen was not going to divorce him. He was going to divorce her first. Oh, okay. (laughs) You can't fire me. I quit. So he filed for divorce on November 29th after liquidating their joint bank accounts and taking out $40,000 in cash advances on their credit cards. Oh, my God. Out of their credit card? Yeah. So he was trying to leave her with nothing. He was trying to make sure she didn't get anything from him. Yeah, that's bad. The interest on taking cash out of your credit card is, like, really bad. Yeah. And so he said when he filed that the only thing she was entitled to was her share of the couple's debt. What? Yeah. That's not how it works. He's like, she can get half of the debt we've accrued during our marriage. She's the mother of your children. That's not how that works. I don't know whether he was actively trying to punish her at this point. There was another theory that he was thinking that if she had nothing, she wouldn't be able to leave him. Yeah. So it's either that he knows she's gone and he's punishing her or that he's like, if I strip her of everything and I scare her enough legally, she'll just stay. Yeah. Well, throughout this crisis, Jen reconnected with Anita and she was still understandably angry about the catfishing, but over the last few months, she'd really come to rely on Anita yeah, for emotional support. And she kind of opened her mind to the possibility that maybe she could be in love with a woman. Amazing. Yeah. So there was this possibility that maybe they could have a future together. But they didn't know. Obviously, Jen has only been in heterosexual relationships. She thought she was still in one with Chris. Anita has lied to her. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to work out. But Anita was still supplying that love and support. And there still was an undeniable connection between the two. Was Anita apologetic? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Which also makes sense why early on in their online relationship, she didn't seem like she thought Jen would be interested in her because if she'd been totally open from the beginning that she was a woman, Jen would not have been romantically interested in her. Yeah. So this, I don't think, is the healthy way to start a relationship, but it's to Jen's testament that she was open to seeing where her heart was leading her. Love is blind. Catfish edition. (laughs) (laughs) So she told Anita that she would be willing to meet face-to-face. But she said that there was no way that that was going to happen until the new year. Essentially, they had to get through Christmas. She had to figure out more of her life with this divorce. Yep. Anita single? Anita was single. And there was some talk of maybe if it did work out together or even if they ended up just friends, like moving their kids in together and helping with the raising of like she's raising her sister's kids. Jen is going to be raising her kids alone. And like maybe that would be a good situation for them, whether it became romantic or not. Definitely be a good financial solution. Yes, to help both households somehow. So there was some future plans, but it did also still sound like she's still talking to somebody that she's never met. Even if she does know who that person is now, these are pipe dreams. These are things that she is clinging to about some sort of future while she's going through the worst time of her life. Yeah. So Jen went into the Christmas season finding the positive. So she was focused on 
teaching preschool and making this the most magical holiday season she possibly could for her kids. Yep. And basically getting through it. She just thought we just have to get through this season and then there'll be a lot of changes. Yeah. Instead, of course, the kids did not end up having a happy holiday. They had the worst holiday of their lives. It would be one that would haunt all of Jen's loved ones for the rest of their lives. Jesse, this is one of the best times of the year, but one downside is that it can create a lot more financial stress. Seriously, there are so many people out there working incredibly hard for their families, but still finding themselves with money challenges, especially around this season because of the way that paychecks are distributed. It's so frustrating. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. Earnin is such an obvious and important product. It gives people more control and more agency without any sort of weird financial games. Seriously, life is absolutely difficult enough without having to worry about the timing of when your paycheck is going to land. And the holiday should be a time of excitement, not money anxiety. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings daily max and pay period max. See Earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Don't settle when it comes to your pup's health. Make the switch to fresh food made with real ingredients and backed by science. That's Nom Nom. Jesse, we are really coming into Artie's best season. Oh, yeah. Artie loves splashing in the lake in winter. But after all, she is a Bernese mountain dog and looks regal in the snow. Plus, she's finally old enough to start pulling the kids in a sled. That is so cool. I can't wait to see that. <laughs> Artie and all the other beloved family dogs out there are why we're so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs. So you can bring out their very best. Nom Nom's made with real whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually and then mixed because science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has different cook times and methods. This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals they need, truly getting the most out of every bite. I really don't think Artie could love Nom Nom more. It's been such an upgrade to her diet and she gets so excited when she eats it, which is especially important during the holiday season when she's real bummed at all of the great food that's going around and she cannot have the human food. Yeah, it's so nice that she has her special food. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. 
No fillers, no nonsense, just nom nom. Go right now for 50% off your no risk two week trial at trynom.com slash lovemurder. Spelled trynom.com slash lovemurder for 50% off. Trynom.com slash lovemurder. On December 4th, 2004, at 7.30 in the morning, the Corbin's neighbor and close friend Kelly heard a frantic knocking at her door. When she opened the door, she found seven-year-old Dalton Corbin still in his pajamas and with a red face that was just streaked with tears. He told her that he had gotten up and he had gone to get his mother up so she could make them breakfast. And he had found that she wasn't breathing. He went on to say, my daddy shot my mommy. I need you to call 911. Kelly was so stunned that she was very much in denial that that was a possibility. Yeah, of course. She was like, okay, well, can you just take me to your mommy and I can see and I can figure out what to do? Because she was hoping that this was just an active imagination. Yeah. So she followed Dalton back to his house and he took her up to Jen and Bart's bedroom. And I think actually Bart had been sleeping in the guest room because- He was there? No, he wasn't there. Oh, okay. It was really Jen's bedroom yeah, yeah, at yeah. that point. Okay. So he took her into Jen's bedroom and Kelly found 33-year-old Jen Corbin lying in her bed, cold to the touch, with blood trickling from her nose and a pool of blood underneath her body. She could also see that there was a butt of a pistol peeking out from under the comforter that was partially covering Jen's body. This is a horrible shock, obviously. She's also thinking about the kids. Like, it's just one of those moments where, even if it's not rational, just all of these things are flying through your head. And she's seeing that some of their Christmas decorations are up. And she's thinking, oh, God, not at the holidays. Not yeah. at the holidays. So she called 911 from the Corbin's house. And one of the shows or a couple of the shows that I listened to actually played the 911 call. And Kelly's obviously upset. And they ask her to put Dalton on the phone. And... This poor boy. And he tells them again, my daddy shot my mommy. And he's on the call saying that. Now, when the authorities arrived, they found that Jen had been dead for some time. Yeah. So unfortunately, there was no life-saving that could be done that day. They did talk to Dalton, and he said he did not witness his daddy shooting his mommy. He just knew that's what happened. Okay. So, obviously, they don't have an eyewitness, really, in him. He just had his own gut instinct about what happened. I do believe that he saw the gun, and that's what he believed had happened. The kids ended up going with Heather's family, whom obviously they were very familiar with, and they had cousins of a similar age, so it was, it was a good atmosphere for Transition, them to be in yeah. at that point. Now, Bart is nowhere to be seen. He is not at the home. It's Saturday. He's not at his practice. He also was not answering the phone when the police tried to contact him. Also, the barbers, Jen's family, are trying to reach him as well. When the investigators first surveyed the scene, it appeared to be a suicide. There was a bottle and a glass of wine on the bedside, and Jen's divorce papers were underneath her body, as well as the gun. To someone who did not know Jen, it would certainly seem like this was a woman driven to suicide by the end of her marriage. 
But Jen's loved ones, of course, thought this was insane. First of all, not only did Jen not have a gun, she didn't own one, she actually despised guns and did not want them in her house. Number two, she would never, ever leave her boys like this. No. Especially in a way that they would be forced to find her body. Yes. That's not how that's going to happen. That wasn't the person she was. No. It seems way too arranged. She was also very interested in her future. She was excited by her future. So this just seems like it's very much like a scene that's been set up. Yes. Also later, the medical examiner would find zero alcohol in her body. Wow. Yeah. When the investigators looked a little closer, they had to agree with Jen's family. This just did not seem like a suicide. First of all, right from the get-go, when they arrived on the scene, they thought, It was a little more of a stretch of an imagination than it would have been with a man because suicide by gun is a very uncommon way for women specifically to commit suicide. It doesn't usually happen that way, just stereotypically. And Jen had been shot from behind her right ear, so she would have essentially had to hold the gun behind her head in order to shoot herself that way. So immediately they noticed that the gun is in front of her and tucked into the comforter. She would have died immediately upon firing the gun because it had severed her brainstem. So it would have fallen behind her. Yeah. She would not have had her faculties together to even continue to move the gun to the front of her body and tuck it into the comforter. Yeah, no. So it's pretty much impossible just given how physics work. Yeah. (laughs) And then the other thing was that she had no blood spatter on her hand or gunpowder residue. Apparently, he's not only not good at dentistry. (laughs) He's also not a very good murderer. He's not good at anything. They also test fired this gun because it's laying there. And it was the gun that shot her. And they said it kicked up a considerable amount of gunpowder residue. Yeah. So it should have been all over her hand. Yeah. So this is obviously no suicide. Someone had killed Jennifer Corbin. The question was, who? Suspect number one was Bart, the violent husband that she was divorcing and who was MIA for hours on the day of the murder. Eventually, it sounds like Jen's family talked to Bobby, his brother, and he was at his brother's house. Hiding out. He did eventually lawyer up and he went down to the police station, I think with his lawyer and with both of his brothers, some eight hours after the police had started calling him. Wow. That's how long it took him to go to the police station. Also, it was very bizarre to everyone that he wasn't concerned about his children at all. Yeah. That he wasn't like immediately like, what happened? Where are my kids? I need to be with them. That wasn't a consideration. He was just hiding out. Yeah. So that was absolutely noted. And thankfully, they had Jen's family to be with. It's better anyway. Yes. So Bart claimed that he had not actually been home the night before. He said that he had gone out with some friends to a bar called the Wild Wing Cafe. He did have the receipt to prove it, and his friends thoroughly alibied him. He said that he had driven one of the guys home and had decided that he was too drunk to continue to drive because it was much farther, I think, at that point to get back to his house. So he decided to sleep it off at Bobby's, and Bobby's house was much closer. Now, Bobby had not been out with him. But he was able to call Bobby or get into his house or something. He said that he had pulled up to Bobby's and tried to sleep in his car, but it was too cold. So he got out and Bobby said he did come in and he he was sleeping it off there. 
Bobby was there and he said that when he told Bart that Jen had been killed or in, in that time they just knew she was dead, maybe by her own hand, he has said that his brother was so upset that he had run to the bathroom and vomited. So he said it was a very strong reaction. Or it was a hangover. <laughs> it could have been that too. Suspect number two was Anita slash Chris. Though the women seemed to have come to some resolution, they had exchanged some heated emails when Jen was very angry that Anita had been catfishing her. And also upon going through all of their correspondence, investigators found one very chilling message. It was in part of a discussion about sexual interests and fantasies and things that they could potentially try or do or see what would be something the other person would be interested in. And according to Anne Rule's book, Anita had asked Jen if she'd ever thought about putting a bullet in the cylinder of a gun and then holding the barrel against Anita's head and pulling the trigger at the very instant Anita had an orgasm. No, no, but people have fantasies like that. Wow. No, it's so scary, especially if Jen doesn't like guns. I mean, I'm right there with her. Like that would never in a million years turn me on. I would be like, get that thing away from me. Yes, she immediately wrote back, no, no, I would never do that. Yeah. So that is a big no-go for Jen. But of course, that's exactly how Jen died. Yeah, it's terrifying. So they have to look at... I'm glad they are. Anita slash Chris over here. Furthermore, the medical examiner put Jen's death at around 2, 2.30 in the morning. And there was evidence that Jen had been talking to Anita up until maybe 1.20, 1.30 in the morning. So Anita is the last person that Jen was speaking to. They had been playing their game and messaging. However, Anita had been in St. Louis and yeah. she was thoroughly alibied. They can check where she is playing her game from and where she was talking on her phone from. And yeah. she was absolutely at home. There's no way she could have made it there to yeah. kill Jen. So, of course, that brings the focus back to Dr. Barton Corbin. Well, the case against Bart was going to get a lot more compelling. And in the meantime, Jen's family and children were being forced to suffer other indignities. So Bart had Jen cremated against her family's wishes. No. And this funeral director really pisses me off because he was really rude to the barbers. And Narda had tried to go to the funeral home and say, please, please, please do not cremate her. This is not what she wanted. And he was like, I'm sorry. Her husband has the right to say what happens to her body. I don't understand that. Like, they birthed her and raised her for the well, majority. Well, I mean, I'm sure it was something legally, because legally you give somebody... They were filing a divorce. I so know. isn't there any gray? But they did let Narda see her before they cremated <sighs> her, which is just so heartbreaking, the last look at your child. So this was already very hard for them. And then they were told that, because they obviously don't want to have a service with Bart. So they were told that they could borrow her remains for their service, and wow. then they had to give them back to Bart. They ended up holding a funeral service on December 10th at Sugar Hill Methodist, the same church where Jen had taught preschool and was very beloved. Well, two strangers attended that funeral, and who they were and what they had to say would go on to alter the case and the course of Jen's loved ones' lives forever. 
An elderly couple named Dr. Carlton and Barbara Hearn had driven for hours from their home in Washington, Georgia, to attend the funeral of a woman they had never met. Because 14 years earlier, their daughter Dolly had allegedly committed suicide by gun. Also, while trying to leave Bart Corbin. What? Oh my God, I just got chills all over my body. What? How amazing of them. It's really incredible. And I know that the investigators were originally a little wary about these two families comparing notes, but they eventually formed a very tight bond. I mean, I think it's a club that no parent wants to be part of. No, but if you can find any sort of comfort from others who have gone through it or help another family if find you've gone justice through it. Yes. For yourself yeah. and for them. Yep. Wow. So let's go back in time and talk about beautiful, brilliant Dolly Hearn. So though Dolly was brunette and not nearly as tall as Jen, they were a lot of like in other ways. Dolly, too, was one of three children born to loving and devoted parents. In Dolly's case, she was the eldest, and she was the only girl with two younger brothers. I think her third brother was significantly younger than her, so it was almost like she was a second mom. Yep. Okay. She was talented, fun-loving, good-looking, athletic. Like Jen, she just really had a way with people. After graduating with an undergraduate degree from Mercer College, Dolly decided to follow in her dentist father's footsteps and go to dental school. <sighs> I'm so glad you didn't go to dental school. <laughs> I didn't have the interest or the ability, let's just say. I think my dad was very disappointed. Neither my brother nor I had any interest in becoming a dentist. I'm just so glad you didn't. <laughs> so I didn't meet Bart Carbon? Yes. <laughs> Even though I would have been three years old in 1987. <laughs> so Dolly started dental school at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. Dolly was immediately a total standout. She was proficient, she's intelligent, but she was also a big splash of color. Dolly dressed really well, kind of outrageously, fashionably for the time, but it was very, you know, the style of 1987. Yeah. It was big everything. So she had the big hair. She wore dramatic makeup. And people always said, oh, well, she was so gorgeous, she didn't need it. It's not the point. It's not the point, people. Women wear makeup because they like how they look with makeup yeah, on. Yeah. It's not always to cover up some insecurity or perceived fault. A lot of times people just like how they look with makeup on or it's artistic or yeah, it's fun. Expression. It's how they express themselves. Yeah. So Dolly was somebody who wore a lot of makeup. She had that big 80s hair. And that just made her so different than a lot of the students at dental school. Yeah. And she also had this gigantic smile and made everyone feel at ease, just made everyone feel comfortable. So decades later, there are two guys that are talking about Dolly on these shows who were friends of hers platonically. Yeah. But even with them being her platonic friend, I think one of the guys was like, was I in love with Dolly? Yeah. Yeah, I was in love with Dolly. Everyone was in love with Dolly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way that they're speaking about her, even decades later, you can tell that she was a very special person. Yeah. And it, that was just kind of the vibe. It's like you don't even get mad at her that everyone falls in love with her because you're also in love with her. There's no jealousy there. Yeah. Unfortunately for her, no one was more in love with Dolly than second-year dental student Barton Corbin. 
By then, Bart projected a studied confidence that he did not actually possess. Besides everything I told you about his dad and the bizarre health class stuff, which gave him a very warped perspective on sex and love and women, he also had apparently been picked on for being chubby growing up. Okay. And I think his dad had also contributed to that. So he had become kind of obsessed with working out and working on his physique. He did start college as a pretty angry virgin. (laughs) But I don't know if it was because he believed that health teacher and did not want to hurt his potential sexual partners or why. But however, in his undergraduate program, he did meet and fall in love with a woman who is like the great love of his life or the great first love of his life. However, she was very career oriented. She was going on to get a master's degree in journalism and she wanted to do the whole journalism thing, which means traveling around, working from station to station, chasing stories. And she told him that there was just no way in the world she was going to be a dentist's wife. So they went their separate ways and that was very damaging to Bart. So by the time Dolly met him, he had changed the way he looked physically and he definitely was a good-looking guy who projected confidence. But inside, I think he still was insecure and felt rejected. He also dressed kind of cool. They said that he dressed more like a rock star than a dental student. So him and Dolly kind of made a good-looking couple. They were both really dark-haired, really attractive. He had earrings. So they kind of had this almost like punky, very 80s look going on. He seemed so confident. He seemed kind to Dolly. One of Dolly's friends would later insinuate that Bart was the first man that she'd ever been intimate with. And she had then fallen in love with him. The two dated for a very long time. They were pretty much exclusive for two years after meeting when she first got to dental school. But eventually, Dolly felt trapped by Bart. He was controlling. He was smothering. He wanted to be around her all the time. She was a flirt. She had that charismatic personality, and he hated it. He was insanely jealous. And Dolly was just a young, vibrant woman who had her life ahead of her, and these were not the qualities that she wanted in a person that she'd be with forever. Yep. And it also probably didn't help that Dolly's parents didn't exactly love Bart either. And they did their best to keep their feelings to themselves, which I think is very wise. I think that you have to let your kids make their own mistakes, come to their own conclusions. And goodness forbid that they end up together. You don't want to be in a situation where you badmouth that person. Yeah, I know. It's very smart, but it's very hard. It's very hard. So they had mostly kept it to themselves, but Dolly knew. I mean, kids know how you feel. Not only did Bart, again, swear when he met these genteel Georgia parents, He also told Dolly's dad, who of course is a dentist himself, that he was only studying dentistry so he could make a ton of money, that he had no interest in helping people. There's other fields for that where you don't have to like, why don't you be like an investment banker or something? Yeah. I mean, even going into law back then, because back then it was like, be a doctor or a lawyer to make money. Yeah. Lawyer would be, I mean, I feel like there would have been many less lawsuits against him for malpractice. I think that his... Maybe his twin brother went to medical school. So maybe there was some competition. He said that he could not wait to get rich off of his poor, unsuspecting patients. According to Carlton Hearn, he said, quote, 
I can hardly wait to graduate so I can stick it to people, which was horrifying. Like the Hearns were so sweet. And when Dolly decided to go to dental school, they said something like, we were so honored that she was going into helping profession. That was not what Carlton Hearn was a dentist for. So that really made him sick to his stomach that this was the type of individual that she was falling in love with. By October of 1989, after some back and forth and on again, off again, Dolly broke it off with Bart for what seemed like good. But that wasn't good for Bart. He would make Dolly come to her senses or punish her in the process. He began stalking Dolly at every possible moment. He managed to get a key to her apartment, which I'm sure one of my boyfriends did this. If you've ever given somebody your key because they're like going home ahead of you while you're finishing something up and then they copy it. So scary. It might have been this type of situation because he somehow was getting into her apartment. He ended up admitting to this later. He replaced her contact lens solutions with hairspray. What? And he also did her roommates because he didn't know which one was Dolly's. So they both had this horrible searing pain and these bright red eyes and did not know why. And one of her friends smelled the solution and said, that's hairspray. Somebody put hairspray in your contact case. He filled her gas tank with pink paint. He slashed her tires at one point, And he also began to sabotage her school projects. He would steal patient files that she was working on. The biggest one was that for that year of dental school, for her big final project, she had to produce a pair of dentures in order to graduate. And he took her dentures. So she was at risk of failing. Oh, my God. Worst of all, I think you're going to be upset about this. Dolly had a beloved indoor cat named Tabitha. And Bart broke into Dolly's house and catnapped Tabitha. He dropped her off in a high traffic area. (gasps) So for two weeks, Dolly searched and searched. And she knew that this cat was like this beautiful long-haired cat that could not take care of herself. She was never an outdoor cat. She put up missing cat posters. She was going out of her mind with worry. This was Dolly's baby. And one of her male friends actually suspected that Bart had done something. And he went to Bart and said, you do realize that if anything happens to Tabitha or she doesn't get Tabitha back, she will hate you forever. There will be no coming back from this. So whatever screwed up things you've been doing, you need to cut it out. But this is like the big one. So Bart eventually went to Dolly two weeks after doing this and confessed to her and said, I did break into your house. I did steal Tabitha. I will take you to where I dropped her off. Obviously, Dolly's upset, but she doesn't even have time to be upset because she's like, just take me there so I can find her. So she said it was a horrible area that was near a highway. It was lower income housing. She just didn't think there was anywhere she'd be able to get food. She started going door to door in this neighborhood. I would have done the same thing. Yep. And knocking on every door and asking them if they had seen this cat. And some of the people said that they had, but they hadn't seen her recently. And no one had taken her in, which is really sad. Miraculously, after a couple hours of searching, Dolly spied a cat in the distance that resembled Tabitha and started calling for her. And Tabitha ran to her and jumped into her arms. It's a miracle. sick fuck. She said that Tabitha was really thin and that her little feet pads were all torn up. But she was alive. 
Because she hadn't been an outdoor cat, so she wasn't used to... Of course. They weren't hardened. So sad. So Bart continued to stalk her, even though they had had some sort of detente after this. And this was also when she's like, what else have you been doing? And he admitted to the contact lens thing. Oh, my God. No, like that's restraining order shit. She was going to the police, by the way. So she was going to the police. She also lodged a complaint with the dental school. She was informing her friends and family, but nothing was being done. I mean, even though she's doing everything, she changed her locks. The dental school officially dropped the complaint in February of 1990. So this was all happening at the end of 1989, well into 1990. And it got so bad that her father even bought her a 38 caliber revolver so that she could protect herself because she didn't know how Bart was getting into her apartment. As the school year came to an end, Bart came to her to make amends. Like, he basically said, I know I've been behaving horribly. I was so crazy in love with you. I really want to put this behind us and we can be friends because I'm going to be graduating soon. I'm going to be leaving to go start working for a dental practice out of town. So we don't have that much time to see each other or say goodbye and even though I did all these awful things, I really hope you can forgive me and at least we can be amicable until I leave. No. Well, unfortunately, Dolly said yes. She said she was completely relieved by this development because having him in her sights and knowing what his emotional state was felt somehow safer than... Having him lurking around. Lurking around with malevolence. Stealing his cat. Yes. She also... This was her first big love. And she had really deeply loved him for a considerable time. When you are that young, two years is a very long time. Of course. So she also agreed that she would much rather end things on good terms. And she did agree to be friends. She figured all she had to do was wait out a couple more months until he graduated. So how hard could that be? Sadly, Dolly would not make it to Bart's graduation. Just after 5 p.m. the afternoon of June 6, 1990, Dolly's roommate found Dolly deceased on their couch. Dolly was sitting cross-legged, slumped over on their couch. She had a gunshot wound to the right side of her head and a 38 caliber revolver that did belong to her in her lap. Dolly's loved ones argued against Dolly's so-called suicide. There was no note. She had been making muffins and preparing food for a family picnic that she was going to. It looked like she was in the process of. They brought up the harassment that she had faced at the hands of her ex-boyfriend. And Bart was extensively questioned. There did end up being a hole in his alibi story. So he had this perfectly portioned out alibi story that pretty much detailed every second of his day, which already was unusual for the investigators because Nobody perfectly remembers to the minute where they were during the day. No. They, like, caught him in a lie because he had originally said that he hadn't gone over to Dolly's. Then at one point he said, I think, that he had, like, gone over to her house because he was supposed to go to a party with her later and he couldn't reach her. So he, like, knocked on her door, but she didn't answer. So he had already, they had caught him in a lie. However, there were no real witnesses. There was no forensic evidence. It was her gun. They took copious amounts of photos. They bagged all the evidence they could up. But the fact remained that there was no forced entry, no sign of a struggle. 
the gun was registered to Dolly. I mean, they said that even though there was suspicion around Bart, there was no way to prove it. Wow. And this is also very frustrating. Somebody who is a first responder had actually moved the gun out of her lap to a different position. So even in the photos that we have, the gun is not in the original position. Yep. So to Dolly's family's dismay, her case was closed and her death was determined to officially be a suicide. So now Dr. Bart Corbin graduated and went along his merry way. Sick. Especially with the fact that she was reporting She was reporting ev- all of it. It just shows that, I mean, 1989, 1990, how little people actually still listened to women. Oh, absolutely. And also... Took it seriously at all. 1990 doesn't feel that long ago, but as far as the availability of forensic experts, there was just nobody that could really look at it the way we would be able to look at it. I mean, even when we're talking about 2004. Yeah. So you can imagine how horrified the Hearns were to discover that 14 and a half years down the line, another woman trying to leave Bart Corbin had died of an alleged suicide by gun. Can't believe they just came to the funeral. It was crazy. It was like somebody who had worked with Jen at her preschool Talk to a friend being like, oh, this horrible thing happened to my coworker. And it was like this, but she was having trouble with her husband. It's so awful. And like that person ended up talking to their cousin or something who knew about Dolly Hearn, who had been friends with Dolly Hearn or had like been in their orbit or something during dental school. How far? From where the dental school was to where they lived at the time. It's like two hours and 40 minutes. Okay. So a little bit of a trek. Yeah. I don't know if the person informing them was still living in the area. I'm not sure. But somehow they knew. And then I think that Dolly's parents were a couple hours away. Yeah. Okay. However, somehow this information had gotten through to them. And I think that there had been a telephone call, perhaps exchanged. But for dramatic delivery, I made it sound like they had no idea who these people were. But I think that they had at least had some idea that this had happened before. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. At least this time, though, the cops already immediately knew this was not a suicide. Because of the gun physics. Just because of the way it was and, you know, advancements in crime scene investigation. So it certainly seemed high time that Richmond County police reopened Dolly's case. So Richmond County in Georgia is where Dolly's case is happening and Gwinnett County is where Jen's case is happening. The detective who was assigned Dolly's reopened case was actually the son of the detective who had first investigated her murder. Whoa. Yes. And the dad, who is now retired, said that he had always suspected that Bart Corbin had murdered Dolly, that his alibi was too well rehearsed. There was also this thing where he had made a big show of dropping off his gun with a friend before the murder happened. And then getting it later as if to say, look, I didn't have any weapons on me. Yeah. Sounds just like a smart-ass kid. Yes. Like who's just trying to think five steps ahead, feeling like he's ahead of everyone else. Yep. Smarter than the cops. Yes. And of course, there's the record of harassment. Yep. So it's not that they weren't necessarily listening to it. I guess they weren't when she first made the complaints. When they're looking at this later, they just cannot prove it. Yeah. They could not prove it. There was really very little they could take to the DA to say, 
But they weren't doing anything to protect her even when she was yes, saying it when and she that's was alive. A, a very decent point. Absolutely. Because stalking is extremely dangerous. Yeah. You did an entire you know, from, Patreon yeah. episode There's about it. There's laws. There's national laws now that exist because of stalking. They're finally starting to roll out in the late 80s and early exactly. 90s, right? Exactly. So this is that fever pitch time. Yeah. So his dad said, yes, absolutely. Like, please reopen this because I always thought that that guy was guilty. Luckily now, they had a trained blood spatter analyst on the force who said that he could likely, if they gave him all of the crime scene photos, discern whether or not it truly was a suicide based on the blood patterns. And he's on the forensic files, the blood spatter analyst, and he said almost right away he could tell that it wasn't a suicide because there was no blood at all on Dolly's right hand. She had been shot on the right side towards the back of the ear, similar to how Jen had been shot. And if that was the case, there should have been some blowback blood spatter on her hand. Yeah. Now, it doesn't seem like they had tested her for gunpowder residue, but just the absence of the blood spatter was enough for him to say that it did not seem possible. They had also tried to say, or if she had truly killed herself, they had tried to say she was alone because there was no sign of forced entry. She was the only one in the house. No one saw or heard anyone coming or going or heard any arguing or heard any noise. So clearly she was alone. And there was very obvious smears of blood on her left leg. And the blood spanner analyst said that these were not clearly not work of just blood spatter. Yeah. These were transfer stains. You could see that somebody had either with their hands or an object put the blood there, either intentionally or by accident. This was something that was a smear. It yeah. wasn't a droplet. So based on, again, how she had been shot and how it would have killed her instantly, and her hands are by her side, she wouldn't have been smearing her own blood. So he said pretty much definitively that it was an impossibility that Dolly did this to herself. 14 years later. 14 years later. As the Richmond County prosecutor prepared for a grand jury hearing based on this new evidence, which I do have, they basically had this like laundry list of when they went into the grand jury, they were like the breakup, the criminal behavior, burglary, theft of cat, hairspray and contact lens solution, theft of files, the recorded admission by silence, Dolly's favorite tuxedo outfit that he stole. He stole her favorite outfit. Knowledge of the gun she had. He knew that she had that gun, so he knew he could use it against her. I guess his car had been spotted in the area, but the license tag had been removed. So he really was thinking about everything. The roommate had said that there was times that she'd caught him standing like frozen in the house when Dolly didn't know he was there. What? Yes. He later admitted that he had lied about his alibi, the fact that Dolly was preparing food for her family vacation that she was a female who was shot in the head unusual for suicide, specific bullet trajectory, blood spatter evidence, absence of blood on the handle of the gun, wound immediately disabling Dolly's fear of the defendant, a retrieval of his personal gun after so-called suicide. So that's what they were bringing up to see if they could get an indictment. 
And while that was going on, Gwinnett County was trying their damnedest to make sure that they could get him for Jen's murder. Yep. In order to do this, they needed to pick apart his alibi. Bart claimed that he left Wild Wing Cafe shortly after one in the morning. Then he had dropped off a friend before trying to sleep in his car, but it was too cold. So then he crashed at his brother Bobby's house. So none of these places were particularly super close to his house. I think that they were maybe 30 minutes apart. Okay. So if true, if he could really say he was where he said he was at all of these places, it could be a feasible alibi. It was still possible, but it was okay. It's pretty good. However, a neighbor familiar with the Corbins said that they heard Bart's truck come home at 1.45 in the morning. So essentially, this neighbor was, he's the one married to Kelly. And they had lived near the Corbins forever. He worked in some sort of field where he knew different engines. And he had this very specific old Chevy truck. You also, like, when you hear it every day, you, you know, know who it, it is. Like, And so he had had, like, a rough night, it sounds like. He had, like, gotten out of work late, and then he had to go help a friend. And then, like, on the way home, there was a woman that was on the side of the road who needed assistance. And so he didn't get home till really late. And so he was apparently putting away his tools because he had been helping the friend with something that you had to repair or, or put together. And he said that he was just about to close his garage door when he heard... Bart's truck come home as it always did. It was just unusual that it was so late, yep. but it's Friday night. So he said he knew it was Bart's truck. He said, I've heard it a million times. I know the sound of that engine. Yeah. It was him. So the police decide to comb through all of his cell phone records to see if he made any calls. Can uh, they do the ping locations too yet or no? So they could do it if he made a call. So that's why they're hoping and praying that he made some calls late at night. And he did. He made a call at 1.58 in the morning. And the signal had pinged not off of a tower near good old brother Bobby's house, but instead off of one right next to his own house on Bogdan Gates Road. Didn't think of everything this time, huh? Yes. So just as a side note, who would he be calling at 2 in the morning? This is just mind-blowing to me. Dara. No, that would make sense to me. He was calling their marriage counselor to leave a message that they would not be going to their appointment the next day. No. So he has either just returned from killing his wife or sitting outside in his truck about to go in and kill his wife and stage her suicide. And he thinks, you know, better call the counselor, avoid that $50 fee for a same-day cancellation. Well, it's technically the same day and anyway. Still, it is. I mean, I and, don't know if that's what he was thinking. I was just that's, imagining. That's like the reason that they're able to locate him there now, which is even more amazing because that ridiculous thought and phone call now put him at the location of the crime. And also, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because that shows that he knew they weren't going to... But he was drunk. I mean, right? I don't know how much he really drank. There was a bill with the beers that they supposedly all drank. And he did put away quite a few beers. I've never been drunk on beers. I so know. I so like... I don't know if that would have affected him. Yeah. It seems pretty ridiculous, though, that he, I mean, maybe he was drunk. Maybe that's why he thought, I got away with it once. I'll do it the same way again. Sickening. It really is. And it's insane that that would be the thing that would catch him up, yeah. is deciding to cancel their marriage counseling appointment. Well, that 
was enough that they were able to get an arrest warrant. Richmond County was actually able to arrest Bart first for Dolly's murder. So they got to the finish line first. Well, I mean, it only took them like 14 and a half years. Technically, they got the arrest first. It had taken them a lot longer to get there. (laughs) On December 22nd, 2004, which happened to be Bart's 41st birthday. Oh, my God. The deadly dentist was out for a little jaunt with his affair partner slash office manager, Dara, when they were pulled over and he was arrested for murder. And it was not the murder he thought he'd be arrested for. I mean, he had spent 14 years getting away with Dolly's murder. So it was a real Pikachu face moment when he heard them say that it was for Dorothy Dolly Hearn's murder. Wow. And what was Dara's reaction? She did not believe he was actually guilty for a long time. She was in denial. She was in denial. She thought that potentially both of those women in his life did truly commit suicide. So two weeks after that, he was also arrested for Jennifer Barber Corbin's murder. Now, this seems like obviously a slam dunk to us telling the story, knowing the ins and outs. But, you know, it's really hard when you just have evidence coming from 14-year-old crime scene photos. Yeah. And blood spatter evidence and the way that you go about collecting evidence and the science behind it is up for debate even now. Yeah. So they did not have a slam dunk there. They also, neither county or case going to trial knew if they were going to be even able to mention the other I was just about murder. to ask that, yeah. So they were trying to make sure they would be able to get that in yeah. in different pretrial hearings. But early on, there was a big question. I think it was eventually determined that they would be able to, in a limited way, discuss the other case. Okay. So this is not going to be as easy as it would seem to us. In pretrial hearings, it also became clear that Bart's top-notch defense attorney was going to argue that both women did actually kill themselves. In Jen's case, they said that they would be entering evidence that Jen was having a lesbian affair. According to reporting by Dateline, she allegedly feared losing her boys in a custody battle and... They said in this dateline, with good reason, I think that they were quoting the defense attorney, her divorce proceedings would have exposed a secret online relationship with hundreds of messages, some of them explicit in nature. Bart's lawyer, David Wolf, said on the 2006 episode of Dateline, quote, the relationship turned graphic and romantically graphic. She learned that the gentleman she thought she was communicating with was, in fact, a woman. And upon learning that information, elected to continue the relationship. Suffice it to say that it seemed pretty likely that Dr. Corbin would have custody of those boys. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That an online alleged affair between two women who had never met in real life, was somehow so damaging that she was going to lose her children to a man that had a real physical in-person affair for the entirety of their relationship. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's like I want to like hit my head against a wall repeatedly right now to get that (sighs) information out of my brain. I mean, that just also goes to show you, like it doesn't seem like, I think this was in 2006, 2006 doesn't seem all that long ago, and that they're saying that 
and evidence of an online affair with a woman, a woman that she thought was a man to begin with, would be enough to make her lose her children? Yeah, that is unbelievable. That's less than 20 years ago. I know. That's crazy. That's crazy. So that was going to be their argument, and they were going to go through every salacious, graphic, damaging email to try to make Jen look like the cheater and look as bad as possible. They also said on this Dayline episode that they had some expert forensic witnesses that would refute the claims of law enforcement and say that it was possible, that it was a suicide. Even as they marched towards trial, though, the Gwinnett County investigators kept working on the case. There were still some lingering questions about how this had all gone down. And kind of like we were talking about, like, was he drunk? How did this happen? How much premeditation is there? And a big part of that question was, where did the gun come from? Was this something they had in the house that was just laying around? It did not seem like it. It wasn't registered to Jen, nor was it registered to Bart. Yeah. So where did the gun come from? It was traced back to a man named Richard Wilson from Birmingham, Alabama, the birthplace of our own Andrea Cassette. So Birmingham, Alabama. And what do you know? This Richard Wilson worked for Bart Corbin's father. I guess Bart Corbin's dad had a company and he had hired Richard Wilson right out of college to work in a sales capacity. Okay. Were they selling guns? No. So Richard Wilson really did try to dummy up. He said, absolutely not. I'm giving you nothing. I barely know Bart. I work for his dad, but I haven't seen him in years. I don't know anything about that gun, so I don't know why it could be potentially traced to me. But I used in a murder crime scene. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. And he tried to say this for quite a while. There was quite a few pages of this book devoted to locking this guy down. (laughs) Eventually, they looked at Bart's cell phone records and Richard's cell phone records and said, "Au contraire, mon frère." It looks like you guys were chatting it up right before his wife was murdered. So in the week before she was murdered, not only did they have a few phone conversations, there was evidence that Bart had driven down to Birmingham, Alabama. So they told Richard, look, you can dummy up all you want, but you are going to be charged with accessory to murder because it's your gun. And when he was facing charges himself, Richard decided to talk. Saying like a canary. Exactly. He said on the record that Bart had called him up and said that he suspected his wife was cheating on him and that Bart needed a gun for his protection. I don't know why he would need protection. Against his wife. (laughs) I don't know. And her online salacious lesbian lover. Yes, I guess that was very scary to Bart. Richard had a gun that he had once received after trading it for a used lawnmower, which is maybe why, yeah, he thought that it wouldn't be traced back to him or he truly did not know or think that Bart was going to kill his wife. I don't know. So he gave Bart the gun with this new evidence and Richard agreeing to testify at trial. Bart's situation was looking much more grim. So the prosecutors of both counties wanted to spare the expense of two trials, as well as the pain of the families having to rehash this. 
And with the family's blessing, they did end up working on a plea deal. And I feel like this was particularly sensitive to Jen's parents because, of course, they were going to have to go to trial every day and just watch the defense smear her name in the mud. And every headline, every newspaper headline, would have been the salacious details that were revealed that day in court instead of who Jen really was. Yeah. A great mother, an amazing human being. This small facet of her life and sexual fantasy life would become all people remembered about her. Yeah. So I think that particularly Jen's parents, while not eager, were very willing to work on a plea deal. Yeah. Only days before his first trial was set to begin in September of 2006, disgraced dentist Bart Corbin pleaded guilty to murdering both Dorothy Dolly Hearn and Jennifer Corbin. During the sentencing, he admitted his guilt, but unfortunately, it wasn't one of those situations where he was forced to extrapolate on it. Simply, they said, did you commit the act of malice, murder, in the act of murdering Dolly Hearn? And he said, yes. And then they said basically the same thing for Jen, and he said, yes. And that was it. That was the totality of the admission, unfortunately. So there's still many questions. Yeah. But he said that he committed the murders. And what did he get? Yeah. He was sentenced to two terms of life in prison, but due to the nature of the plea bargain and also the laws in Georgia about life sentences at that time, they would run concurrently and not consecutively. Yeah, but they're life sentences. But it wasn't without parole. Okay. So it's essentially a two for one because they're running at the same time. However, it was for quite a while. It wasn't kind of like a 10 to life, 20 to life situation. Technically, he will be eligible for parole at some point. But I can tell you that as of now, he is still behind bars. And the Gwinnett County prosecutor believes that Bart Corbin will likely never see the outside world again. It would be very surprising if he got parole. Those that knew and worked with him, like the person who left the comment on the blog, went on to say, I didn't read the rest of the comment, but essentially he will always be a danger to society. Yep. You cannot let this man out. He needs to live the rest of his life in prison. And that's like a random person on a forum. Who worked with him, yeah. though. So yeah. yeah. So people who seem to know him at all seem to think that he He's would dangerous. still be dangerous. Yeah. I mean, especially his pattern in romantic relationships definitely seems to suggest that. Yeah. And if that's his professional behavior? Yeah, absolutely. So Dalton and Dylan were raised by Heather's loving family alongside their cousins. That's Wonderful. how they were raised. And Dolly was posthumously awarded her dental degree. So she is now forever remembered as Dr. Dolly Hearn. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with Anne Rule books, you get everything. You get just the whole kitchen sink of any detail you would ever want to know. So I have about a million loose ends just to tie up here that I could not neatly weave into the narrative. Okay. But you guys need to know them. So they're not Wikipedia fun facts. They're like... And rule fun facts. And rule fun facts. Can you still sing it? And rule fun facts. That's pretty good. So I'm going to start with the least important details to the most important. Okay. So first of all, there is a TV movie made about this case. It is called And Rules, Too Late to Say Goodbye. And it's starring none other than 
Rob Lowe. As Bart? As Bart. Wow. So you're probably thinking, if you're doing the, the tabulations at home, Rob Lowe again? How many of these movies has Rob Lowe been in? So I looked it up. Rob Lowe has been in three of our cases now in the Lifetime movie versions of them. He played Drew Peterson. Yep. He played Ben Novak. Yep. Now Bart Corbin. And he also starred as the prosecutor in the Casey Anthony Lifetime movie. That's it, though? That's it. That's his Lifetime career. That's it. It's a legacy. So I think that might be it. I have no intention of ever doing Casey Anthony. So I think that's it for us and Rob Lowe, unless he gets back into the Lifetime movie game. I mean, I would doubt it. He still looks like he's 30. I know. (laughs) Get back into it, Rob Lowe. (laughs) Okay, so way more relevant to our case today is that Anita, our catfish's real last name, was Hearn. No relation, but isn't that spooky? Yes. That's like a Hearn ghost was coming to like... Yes. So there was some speculation that maybe he found out that the real person she was talking to was Anita Hearn, and maybe he thought his wife was putting two and two together. But I also read in a different source that it didn't seem like there was any evidence he knew Christopher was not a man. So we don't know whether he actually knew that until after the fact. Got it. Okay. We don't know. Next up, and I think this is a fact that you guys will all find interesting, Dara Prentice was allegedly not Bart's only pre-gen marriage affair partner. According to Anne Rule, Bart was also rumored to have a romance with another woman who worked at a dental office that Bart had worked at. She was older than he was. She was 50 to his 30. But she was considered a very, very attractive recent divorcee. This was a woman named Harriet Gray. And Harriet Gray disappeared the same weekend that Bart and Jen Corbin were married. Forever? Forever. And rule. Well, I think that's a pretty big point. Well, she was eventually found, but not alive. What? And Rule wrote, Harriet Gray never came home. As it turned out, she wasn't able to. Eighteen months after she disappeared, a scuba diver discovered the hulk of a car at the bottom of Lake Tuscaloosa. What? In Alabama. Oh, it gets worse. The car's registration came back listed to Harriet Gray. Her body was floating inside the car, her hands duct taped to the steering wheel. That obliterated even the slightest chance that she had committed suicide, Harriet's murder is still unsolved today. It was definitely him. So I read another article that some of the inmates had tried to talk to him about whether or not he also killed Harriet. And he said that they'll never get me on that when I was on my honeymoon. And he told another guy that he didn't have anything to do with Harriet and he didn't know her, hardly knew her. There was also a fourth woman that he was acquainted with. It was actually a friend of Jen's who had disappeared nine months before Jen was murdered. But there was less of a connection between him and her. It just was shocking that this much mysterious death and murder surrounded him. Before I get to the last fact, I'm going to go back to the funeral director who... Well, apparently after Bart went to jail, he had never paid for the cremation and whatever they did to prepare Jen's body. So they tried to bill Jen's parents. And Jen's parents were 
obviously upset because they said we begged you and cried and told you please not to cremate her and now you're charging us you're billing us for her cremation and they said well if he's not going to pay it and he's unable to pay it her next of kin has to pay it and they end up going on tv and exposing the funeral director for charging them and the funeral director changed their mind and said that they would not be charged for it i was hoping you said they got their license revoked (laughs) okay last fact last fact i thought this would be the most heartwarming one to end on I want you to know, Andy, that Tabitha lived a good, long, happy, healthy cat life. She was adopted by Dolly's mother, and she lived to be 21 years old. <laughs> 20? Oh, my God. I don't know what I'm going to do if Quincy lives till he's 21. So Anne Rule went to obviously visit the Hearns and speak to Dolly's parents, and Tabitha was still alive. Unbelievable. Like, she's kind of crotchety, but she was still kicking. Wow. So long live Tabitha. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> she was like, Anne Rule said something about just unbelievable to be around a cat who was over 100 years old in cat years. Legend. Legend. In conclusion, oh, I am so sorry to say to all my beloved dentists out there, these murders are really giving your profession a bad name. I mean, this isn't even the last deadly dentist story I have for you guys. I got to tell you, I got a couple books on my shelf right now. What is going on with dentistry? We could have had a whole sub podcast. I know, we could have. (laughs) Missed opportunity. Also, I would like to remind everyone that there is a searing, scary ass layer of pet limbo in Dante's Inferno for anyone who kidnaps a cat and drops it off in a high traffic area especially when they're long-haired and have never been out of the house. And their little paws get all torn Yeah, up. you have fun in your limbo sandwich and <laughs> H-E double hockey your, sticks. Your purgatory between circles of hell? Yes. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> and as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Or in pet purgatory, yeah. apparently. <laughs> love you guys. Bye. Bye. 